This morning we'll be concluding our summer series in the Psalms by looking at Psalm 145. This Psalm is of David and is a guide for us for how we are to offer praise to God. The Hebrew word for the Psalms is Tehillim, which means book of praises. This Psalm is the only Psalm to actually include that word in the title. The emphasis draws us to consider the greatness of David's offering of praise. In addition, this psalm is a concluding psalm in reflection of the psalms in this section and also of the entire Psalter. This psalm declares the glorious nature of who God is and admonishes us to respond in praise. I think it's fitting that we're ending our series with this psalm because in many ways it's the high point of the Psalter. The Psalms collectively declare God's providential care for his people and call us in response to offer praises to him. Now, one might ask, why would we need a guide? Or why do we need to be taught how to offer praise to God? I don't think we're given the Psalter because we don't know how to offer praise in general. We're made to be vessels of praise and worship. I think the reason we need instruction is that more often than not, our praise is misplaced. This is evidenced to us by Romans 1, where Paul says that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. This diagnosis isn't limited in scope but it prescribes the condition of all mankind in our fallen estate. You see, it's in our brokenness that we've become disconnected from what was always meant to be the object of our worship, our loving and gracious Father. It's important that we don't pass by God's gracious love for us. Our fallen nature is to disorder all things in our lives, both externally and internally. It's important to remember that God doesn't just stand back and wait for us to fix our issues, but He graciously enters in and works to bring correction to this disordering. That's the beauty of the Scriptures. They're external to us. We don't control them. Scripture is the very words of God entering into our brokenness to instruct us in order to see what we are in, in order to reorder what we are incapable of fixing. So then, as we'll see in Psalm 145, this psalm teaches us how to rightly worship by declaring the glorious things of God. It instructs us to sing back to Him the attributes of His character and the wondrous things that He has done and is doing in faithfulness to His people. If you haven't yet, please go ahead and turn to 145. But before we read, let's go before our God in prayer. Our Father, we come before you asking that you would give us understanding of your word. We ask that your name would be made great, that your spirit would reveal your word to us, and we would grow in our knowledge of who you are and who you have called us to be in union with Christ. Would you be honored this morning as we seek to bring you praise and glory. Amen. This is Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, 
and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, before we jump into the text itself, one helpful thing to know about this psalm is that it's a chiasm. Now, you might be asking, what is a chiasm and how is that helpful? Uh, Those are excellent questions. Uh, A chiasm is a poetic structure often found in ancient literature. Uh, The psalms generally use this form, which differs from our poetic structures in English. In English, we rely heavily on word patterns, rhymes, and specifically the final lines of a poem to convey meaning. However, in Hebrew poetry, the center of the psalm is often the key to understanding the meaning of the psalm. This is important to note because if we don't understand this, we can often misunderstand what's being communicated. So generally, when reading a psalm, think of it like a pyramid, where the key point is at the center, the top of the pyramid, and the psalm will express one or two points to drive home the crucial truth at the center, then repeat the initial points expressed earlier. Up one side of the pyramid, see the top, then back down to the starting point. The center unlocks the meaning of the introductory and concluding verses. To illustrate this, I'm going to reference Psalm 23, which, like 145, is a chiasm. It's a shorter psalm and very familiar. The image that quickly comes to mind from that psalm is that of God as a shepherd. But it's not just the idea of God being a shepherd 
that's key to understanding Psalm 23. It's the nature of what a good shepherd does, namely that a good shepherd is is present with his sheep. The presence of God is at the center of this psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This is the key to the middle of the psalm that unlocks the meaning for the entire psalm. You can actually end each phrase with, you, for you are with me, because it will illustrate why we have comfort. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, for you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, for you are with me. Understanding this center is important to understand what the Psalms are communicating. You'll actually, if you look at the outline in the bulletin, uh, what's provided isn't an error. I've actually had it printed with the indentation to show the structure of, a chiasm, of the chiasm in Psalm 145. So with all this in mind, let's begin. David begins this psalm by committing himself to praising God and blessing his name, not just on a single occasion, but every day for eternity. So great is David's love for God that even though he rules a kingdom, he submits himself to God. Rather than becoming inwardly focused, David recognizes that the giver of his kingdom is to be blessed rather than what is given. This loyalty and commitment is in light of the true greatness of our God. David doesn't make these statements casually or lightly. You see, in a way, we've become desensitized to what greatness means. That most recent Marvel movie was great. The new double mega outrageously stuffed Oreo cookie was great. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. We use the word great to elevate common things in life. The reality is that this world pales in comparison to the unsearchableness of our God. Now, unsearchableness doesn't mean that we're unable to understand what God has revealed to us about himself. Rather, it means we never gain a complete understanding of all the aspects and facets of God's character. One of the consequences of the exchange humanity made when we chose to worship the creation rather than the creator is we now believe that we are equal, or should be equal, to God. We think equality is something that can be grasped, but we are utterly incapable of understanding the full nature of God's character because we are finite and He is infinite. We will never arrive at a complete understanding because His his depth is greater than we can possibly fathom. This is important for us to understand because our fallen nature constantly seeks to create a God that we can control. God desires that we know what he has revealed about about himself to us, but that revelation is to be stewarded, not owned. It is limited. The full, infinite knowledge of God is so great that if it were to be fully revealed to us, it would crush us. And if he is that much greater than anything we have the the capability to comprehend, then our desire, wonder, and praise of him should be deeper and more passionate than our praise of other things. While God's greatness and character is unsearchable, 
his works are on full display. David's admonishment in verses 4 through 7 is for each generation to pass on this knowledge to the next. The mighty acts to Israel would have been the story of the Exodus and God's deliverance of Israel from bondage to freedom. Also, the care of Israel in the wilderness and God faithfully fulfilling His promise to return Israel to the promised land. These acts, though, were but a foreshadow of the ultimate deliverance God provided for His people through through Christ's death and resurrection. David goes further than just telling us that we need to pass on this knowledge to the next generation. The word commend here can also be translated as praise. We are to praise His works to the next generation. And I think this is key. To truly praise these works, they must be more than just rote liturgy. It's not just about a commitment to the deliverance God has provided. Do we look at the beauty of the story of God's grace and fall in love with it? Does that love then turn to an outward expression of joy and praise? Our praise to God for what He has done is central to making His name great to those who come behind us. Our children and our families in this church should see the current generation living a life of praise back to the Father. Because of His great love, we respond in love. This is central to the work of bringing our children into the knowledge of God in both our individual and covenant family. When we reflect on the goodness of what God has accomplished through the saving worth of the gospel, it should come forth with joy. If we are a joyless people, do we fully grasp the greatness of what God has done? Our desire is not for our covenant children to be well-behaved and just know Bible stories. We have the privilege of being part of God's work to call our children to Him. Our prayer should be that we would be a people utterly captivated by the greatness of God's provision. And out of that meditation and praise, the next generation is pointed towards Christ, who calls them into His loving arms. What a beautiful picture David gives us in verse 7, that the next generation shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing a cloud of your righteousness. Would this be the prayer for our covenant children and also for us? Our ability to wonder at God's greatness, know His works, and witness the calling of the next generation is all but a mercy. None of us, none of the benefits that we have as God's people are because we've earned our place. Not only does God show His people mercy, but He is also merciful to all creation. His common grace constrains the evil in this world. As hard as it is to see at times, things are not as evil as they could be. And that is but a mercy. Further, when God's people are confronted with the depth of our sinfulness, we desperately need to hear the words of David in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I think Paul's instructions to Titus in chapter 3 help fully flesh this out, where Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, 
passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, for all eternity, all God's people will be singing of this mercy shown so richly to us in Christ. Now we come to the center of this psalm, verses 10 through 13. Here David declares God's lordship. God's rule and reign is central to his mercy, his deeds and wonders, and his name. On an individual level, God's reign is the answer to our heart's desire to rebel. Out of our fallenness and our depraved hearts, we think we can set up our own kingdom to rule as we see fit. I think Paul David Tripp is helpful in describing this conflict when he writes, Christ really does give us only two options. Either we've attached our identity, meaning, purpose, and inner sense of well-being to the earthbound treasures of the kingdom of self, or to the heavenly treasures of the kingdom of God. What we fail to understand without God's merciful intervention is that kingdoms are like sandcastles on the beach. They are quickly passing away, no matter how much we try to defend them. But God's kingdom is eternal and will never end. More broadly, David also points to a stark contrast here between earthly kingdoms and God's kingdoms. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall. How many great kingdoms and empires have dominated history, yet are no longer here? The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Holy Roman Empire, and countless others. Earthly kingdoms are but vapors, including our own personal kingdoms. But this is not so with God's kingdom. David declares that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It is through God's kingdom that we see His mercy for this world on full display. Christ in His earthly ministry repeatedly declared that God's kingdom was at hand, a kingdom that was ushered in with mercy through Christ's death and resurrection. He atoned for a debt we could no we have no hope of repaying. Through that atonement, our loyalty is no longer to ourselves and what we can build, but to Christ and His gospel. I think this is why the answer to question one in the Heidelberg Catechism is so powerful, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins, with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. This is the work we are to declare and sing in praise to God and to the next generation. Through God's mighty saving act, we receive a glimpse of the unsearchableness of his great name, a name that is mighty to save, rich in glory and majesty. It's important to note that David's praise here is forward-looking. The ushering in of the king had not yet come to pass. 
God's kingship is fulfilled in Christ, as we read in Revelation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It is in awe of Christ's kingship that we are called into a continual life of praise. Every day, as we see the rich mercy He has lavished on us, we are to call on our God and King and declare His power and might. It is out of the reality of God's kingdom that these truths flow. Now David, having declared God's kingdom, returns in verses 14 through 16 to God's mercy. Earlier, David spoke generally of the nature of God's mercy. Here he explores the tender care God shows towards his people. It's, it's an echo of what Jesus would later tell his disciples in Matthew 7, that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give, give good things to those who ask him? Our faithful God is not far from his people. Our heavenly Father is mindful of the needs of his people. When we feel weak, are overwhelmed by our sin, or weighed down by the struggles of life, Christ enters into that brokenness. He is not far from us because He knows our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then have confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. It is out of the depth of our frailty that Christ enters in and upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. In verses 17, 17 through 20, David again returns to declaring God's accomplishments. As we discussed earlier, repetition is a key part of the poetic form David is using. But David doesn't simply repeat the same aspects as before. When David discussed the deeds of God in verses 4 through 7, he focused on the grandness of God's work. Here, David highlights how the, work, how the deeds of God are displays of his character. The Lord is both righteous and kind in his works. When we don't understand how God is using hard or painful events in our lives, we can rest in the knowledge that He is above reproach. God is not a child with a magnifying glass sitting on an anthill. He's righteous. He's kind. He hears the prayers of His people. Indeed, as Paul proclaims in Romans, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. Finally, David ends this psalm of conclusion where he began. He calls himself in all flesh in light of God's deeds, his mercy, and his kingdom to praise and bless God's holy name. It is in and through Christ that all of God's works have been fulfilled. Our Heavenly Father has given all things to Jesus and made His name above every name, as we read in Philippians 2. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowing on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is where the connection between Psalm 145 and the New Testament and Jesus come into play. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that David writes in this psalm. And when we reflect on the greatness of our God and see all that he has done, we have but one response, to lift up the name of Christ in glorious praise forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, help us to be a people who seek to praise you. Root us in the reality of your kingdom and reign over our lives and in this world. We confess that we are quick to run to other things. Draw us through your Spirit more and more into the love of Christ. Would you give us the desire to confess his rule and reign over our lives? I pray that this would not be merely an intellectual knowledge, but that we would respond because of our love of the gospel, and that that love would move us to be a people who seek to make your name great. Amen.